Hi, and welcome to BJGP Interviews. My name is Nada Khan, and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. Thanks for taking the time today to listen to this podcast. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Karen Smith, who is a GP trainee and PhD student at the Department of General Practice over at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. We're going to discuss the paper that she and her colleagues have written in the BJGP, titled Home Monitoring by Pulse Oximetry of Primary Care Patients with COVID-19. So thank you, Karen, for joining us today. Um, And just talking a bit around the paper. So this was a pragmatic study looking at use of pulse oximetry in patients with COVID in primary care. So this study looked at quite an important issue during the COVID pandemic. And I just wanted to talk to you a bit about what led you to do this research and what we know so far in this area. Yes, well, thank you for having me on this uh, on this show. And um, well, in the first wave of the pandemic, um, we, well, a lot of uh, doctors started to uh, use pulse oximetry um, because it was seen that the COVID nineteen patients um, had very uh, could have very low oxygen saturation levels, um, but they didn't always experience uh, hypoxemia with it. So they didn't experience shortness of breath, um, but they mentioned more symptoms like uh, feeling very tired and then um, this this discrepancy was uh, seen between the oxygen saturation level and the patient's uh, uh, symptoms so that led to the increase of the use of pulse oximetry at home there wasn't really uh, any uh, research on this topic if it would be beneficial for patients to use uh, pulse oximetry at home and if that led to earlier hospital admission or uh, earlier start of treatment. Of course, did it lead to better outcomes? We didn't know. We, we really wanted to know, is it beneficial for the patients? So tell us a bit more about what you did. This was a pragmatic open label trial, wasn't it? Tell me a bit about um, who was recruited into the trial and what, what, what was done in terms of monitoring the pulse oximetry in, in this cohort? Well, we were uh, especially interested in the patients who were more at risk for um, uh, serious uh, consequences of COVID-19. So that were patients who were a little bit older. Well, in our study, they were uh, 40 years of age or older. And that were patients with cardiovascular uh, comorbidities, like hypertension or um, after myocardial infarction or diabetes. Um, And as well, also patients where the GP thought, hmm, I think this could be a patient at risk. I want to monitor this patient. So we didn't really want to uh, investigate uh, whether patients of, of 18 years old with only like um, very mild symptoms, uh, if they could benefit from a pulse oximeter, um, but especially the at-risk patients. So the primary outcome that you were looking at here was feasibility. Um, and you had a couple of other outcomes as well. Talk me through some of the primary outcomes. As we mentioned, feasibility was the primary outcome. So what were the main findings around that? Yes. Well, we, we found that uh, patients were very willing to um, um, contribute to this research and they were willing to be randomized. And that was also interesting um, because after uh, randomization, we saw that uh, a lot of people from the um, control group uh, actually used a 
an own pulse oximeter, <laughs> at least once. Um, but well, they were willing to participate and they also um, um, really um, uh, used it three times a day for 14 days. Um, and that was an, an important uh, finding that they, they really adhered to the stu study procedures in that way. And then talk me through some of the secondary outcomes. So one of the main secondary outcomes was around patients feeling a sense of safety with pulse oximetry. So talk us through those findings. Yeah. Yeah, we wanted to know how they, uh, whether they felt safe in the past uh, 14 days. And, um, well, we saw and the patients could give a score from a zero, totally unsafe, to 100, safe. And we saw that the patients from the intervention group actually had a higher uh, score. So they felt more safe than patients from the control group. And we uh, specified that for uh, hospitalized and non-hospitalized uh, patients. And then we also saw that the uh, hospitalized patients from the intervention group had still a higher feeling of, secure, of safety than the non-hospitalized or than the patients from the control group. Um, and we think that uh, it was a combination of um, patients could directly see the oxygen saturation level. Uh, so they, they measured this, those three times a day, but they were also instructed to measure more often in case they uh, felt worse or in case they were not sure. Um, so this direct feedback from the pulse oximeter, um, we think that contributed to the uh, higher feeling of safety. And when the patients were giving, given the pulse oximeter, were they given any information about how to interpret that? So some people might not be reassured by an oxygen saturation of 96%, whereas a clinician may be reassured by that. So what sort of information did you give to the patients alongside it, just so that people who are thinking about applying this in practice know what's feasible to give out? Yeah, well, we instructed the patients um, at the moment of uh, inclusion. Um, and I actually went by the patients to uh, do the first measurements uh, together. But uh, we also had uh, firm, uh, written uh, information um, and the patients also had some kind of paper diary. And in all this information, and we also had a video, um, but the video, the patients didn't watch the video. They thought the personal instructions and also the written instructions were enough. And in those instructions, it was explicitly stated that when the oxygen saturation was below 94, they had to measure again after five minutes of rest. And then when it was still below 94, they had to call the GP or uh, another um, caregiver. Um, so we, we um, try to make clear that when it was above 94, then it was okay. But we also said that when the oxygen saturation is above 94, but you don't feel okay, then you also should call. So the, the findings around anxiety were interesting because some people have suggested that patients having a pulse oximeter might actually increase anxiety. But this trial found the opposite actually yes yes yeah and yes and and that was kind of also seen in the, in the control group because a lot of people used uh pills oximeter 
uh, after inclusion, um, and they didn't do that as often as as the as the intervention group. But they mentioned they at one point uh, also measured it. Um, so that that gives a, a kind of um, direction that all patients with COVID-19 uh, in this study felt more safe using it. This is quite a small study as a feasibility trial, and some of your implications for practice focus on how a larger study might look at this um, in more detail. But what do you think are the implications for practice, especially given the changing landscape of COVID? How would we implement this in, in practice? Yes, one important um, implication uh, would be that um, GPs or other caregivers um, shouldn't really hesitate um, um, because we uh, heard uh, a lot of times that, uh, well, the same argument that patients could be more, uh, could experience more anxiety. But, well, that's not the case. But we also heard something that um, GPs would experience extra workload. But that was also not the case. So I think one uh, implication uh, is that it is okay to give them out um, because it will not uh, increase anxiety and it will not increase workload. But I think it would be most beneficial for patients at risk, especially in the changing uh, landscape of COVID-19, because otherwise normal healthy people would not benefit as most as the people at risk. Any other key findings you want to highlight from this paper? Yes, that's something we we think is important that patients at home uh, should use a a medical validated uh, pulse oximeter. Um, And that's because we think uh, that the consumables, so the ones from Amazon or other uh, consumer websites, might not be be as able to detect hypoxemia as well um, as the medical ones. And that's the important range of oxygen saturation level uh, in patients at risk. So it's nice that they, they can detect a normal oxygen saturation level, but well, okay, that's good. But we um, uh, can compare it a bit with a thermometer. Like you wouldn't use it if you don't feel like you have a fever. Um, but you really want to use it if you feel sick, and then it should give you the exact accurate oxygen saturation level. So perhaps another implication is that the pulse oximeters should either be issued by the doctor or there should be specific recommendations about which ones to purchase if people are doing that themselves. Okay. I wonder if I could just take this opportunity to ask you to summarize the paper and the main results in a few few sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this uh, pilot uh, study, we randomized um, patients with COVID-19 with cardiovascular risk um, comorbidities um, into a group with uh, who used the pulse oximeter three times a day for 14 days and a control group uh, who received usual care from the GP. And we saw that the patients in the intervention group um, really adhered to the study procedures and uh, measured uh, almost three times a day. Uh, They felt more safe using the pulse oximeter. Uh, It did not lead to more 
GP consultations. Yeah. Okay, great. I think that's a really great note to end on. There's some practical tips about what's an important topic. And as you say, pulse oximetry was rolled out without much evidence around what patient perceptions were, and as you mentioned, GP workloads. So I think the results of this study are quite reassuring to people in terms of planning forward about home pulse oximetry measuring. So I think it's an important piece of work to help inform COVID policies. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. You're welcome. And thank you all very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The research article can be found on bjgp.org and the show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. I'm going to keep reminding everyone about the upcoming BJGP Research Conference, which is being held in London on the 31st of March 2023. It's going to be a great opportunity to hear speakers such as Professor Trish Greenhall and our own Editor-in-Chief Ewan Lawson speak. The conference website is up and running at bjgp.org forward slash conference, so please do look there to register and join us on the day. Look forward to seeing you all there. Thanks again, and bye!